you turn to Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. We are going there for the last time, and it's about the end times. And some of you have probably been thinking, well, it's about time. We've uh, been in Babylon in exile since September, and uh, you're ready to be back in Hickory 2023. You've been eating some Persian and Greek food, and you want some Southern barbecue. And I understand we'll, we'll get there eventually, but we do have one last time to spend with Daniel looking back on his life. And as I was thinking about that this week, a verse came to my mind when I'm looking at the end of Daniel, and if you've read through it in advance, maybe there's a theme that you heard repeated that emerged about the end of the age, the end of time, the end of a story, the end of a king. And it had in my mind Ecclesiastes 7-8, that the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now, that's not a verse that in its context is um, something that you need a bunch of other verses to understand. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are meant to be really simple, straightforward, short and sweet, but you're not to move on past them too quickly. They're, they're like a hard tack candy you let roll around on your tongue, but you let the truths of these things roll around in your mind that the end of a matter is better than its beginning. And as you think about the end of Daniel and him talking about the end, it, it stopped me to say, why is the end of a matter better than its beginning? And what that simple truth of Ecclesiastes 7-8 states is that it gives you perspective. The, what you thought you knew at the beginning of something and what you think you're figuring out in the middle of something is not as important as what you gain by the end of something. When you can actually look back and have perspective on, on what has happened. Now, I know that applies generally. It's a proverb. It's an axiom. There are times where you might say, no, no, no. The, the beginning of something is better than the end, like summer break. All my fourth graders in the house. You know, I, well, no, I don't, I don't want summer to come to the end. But young person, student, when you do come to the end of a semester, the end of the school year, the, the end is better than the beginning, not just because school's out, because hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you look back and you can, you can take something away from it and it can stick with you. And that's just not for the student in the house. That's for the student of the Lord. What season are you in that you may even see something coming to an end? A relationship, maybe you have an older kid who's about to go off to college and what can you say that's better now at the end than at the beginning? And that you can, if you just stopped and ask the Lord, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to show me here? He would have something that he could teach you and show you so that you can say, man, I'm glad I went through all of that because now I have perspective. A perspective that you only get having come to the end, not in the middle and definitely not at the beginning. And so here we are at the end of Daniel. Apologies to those who are coming in at the end. Looks like you just got to go back and listen to the 400 sermons I've already preached on it. 17 if you're keeping tabs. Let's read Daniel 11, 36 through 12, 13. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous, monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. For he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor with gold, silver, costly stones and treasure. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. 
and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on the bank of the river and the other on the bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is God's living and active word to us. Since it is alive, may he enlighten us through it. And since it is active, maybe may he empower us to do it. The end is better than the beginning and we may think at first when we read prophecy that knowing about the end and the details of it is what makes prophecy so meaningful. We can get caught up in trying to figure out the details of the future 
But the reality is, no matter how much you might know of the future, you can't do a thing to change it. The point of prophecy isn't to give you a glimpse into the future so that you somehow could usurp the power of God Almighty and try to change what you think is going to come. Rather, you being given a glimpse into the future by way of prophecy is not about you changing the future, it's about what you know about the future changing you. It's that you would see what is coming and by God's grace, change. See that what he says about the end goes. And you can't do anything. No one in all history of Daniel 1 through 12, brothers and sisters who have joined us late to the game, you are like my dad who is a master at walking in at the last 10 minutes of a movie growing up. And in the midst of the greatest and most intense point, he's standing in the middle of the den going, hey, so who's that character? And um, isn't he from another movie? And everybody's like, Dad, can it? <laughs> well, here's, so one of us would have to hit pause and go, listen, Dad, okay, here's how the thing went down and give a 30-second recap. I'll give you a three-second recap. The God of heaven reigns. That's what you've missed. That was the message from Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 made it look like that Israel was going into exile because Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was, give, was taken over by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon in 605. And that was true on the human horizon. But what have we seen all along through the book of Daniel on God's horizon line? Verse 2, Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So, so all that's changed in the 70 years from Daniel 1 to Daniel 12 and from September until today in 2023 is the addition of one word. The title of the first sermon back in September was The God of Heaven Reigns. And, and one word will be added to finish the matter. It's that the God of Heaven reigns forever. So he doesn't just reign in the past because we can look back and see it. And we don't just believe he reigns in the present we believe he reigns forever. The next second, in the next hour, in the next day, in the next year, in the next century, in millennia, and you name it, he's reigning over it. And that's the hope we have, isn't it? So what can we take away from today? Well, we're going to see that though all things, all kings, all stories come to an end God alone reigns forever. God alone endures forever. God alone stands forever. And everything else will pass by the wayside. There's your two-minute update. So let's first see that God's forever reign stands against the reign of a last king. The first last lesson we'll learn from Daniel 11, 36 to 45, which we already read, is that what comes of every earthly king apart from God. They come to an end. These 10 verses, if you were here last week, you saw they, they seem to flow seamlessly from verses 21 to 35. And we saw last week that 21 to 35, God with 100% accuracy called the shots in Antiochus Epiphanes IV his life. 
His 11 good years of, as in on an earthly level of a king, from 175 to 164 BC, Daniel 300 years prior is calling the shots on what's becoming of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And you can go back and you can, as I said, measure verses 21 to 35 against Wikipedia and see all the names of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the back and forth of trying to come against this king and yet he stood until he didn't, until he came to his end. Now, you might be looking at the white space between 35 and 36 saying, well, then the king, that's the same guy. Except when you read 36 to 45, you realize, wait, all the things that are being said in these 10 verses about this king is not the same as that king. So it can't be the same person. The 36 to 45 isn't how it went down in Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth life. This is a new king. So what do we make of it? Well, that's prophecy. When Daniel is looking forward and being told by God how the future kings and kingdoms are going to come and go, we have likened it when you look forward and you see mountain ranges in front of you and they look, the peaks just look stacked up next to each other. And then you start hiking through them and you realize there's a distance between And so we take the view that Daniel had looking forward that all he could see is a succession of kings one after the next. We get to turn our Bibles sideways and look and see the gap in between. And the gap in between 35 and 36, the gap starts in verse 35. It comes to an appointed time. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 164, he's off the scene. And now the white space is where we live, the church age. And verse 36 is picking up with the final king. The king that's going to come to an end by way of the king of kings. This is the Antichrist, 36 to 45. It summarizes his future reign, the last king to reign on earth before Christ comes to set up his king forever. And as we talked about the 69 weeks in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, this is the 70th week. This is the last seven years on this earth. And Antichrist is ruling and reigning. He has seven years in power. And I could take you two passages in Revelation 12 and 13 and the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 and even Ezekiel 28. So you could jot those down and check them out on your own. We don't have time to do it. But that's who this is describing. From different times and vantage points, we're talking about the Antichrist. But if we need to learn about him, not so that we can be wary of him, because reality is you couldn't do anything about it even if you knew who it was going to be, can you? You could know who the Antichrist is. God could give you special revelation and tell you he's going to show up next week over in the Middle East. He's going to come from Canada. Nothing against my Canadian brothers. I'm just picking a spot. And you can say, you know what? I'm going to, change. I'm going to go stop him. And you won't stop him because guess who stops him? God stops him. That's how prophecy works. It's going to go according to the way God says it, not the way we might want to change it. So here we go. What's the Antichrist going to do? What's he going to be like? Well, the point that God is making to Daniel is that as bad as this brother is, as, as awful of a ruler, and he's worse than Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 1121, a real despicable king. This king is worse. Why is he worse? Because... With every king that has come and gone off the scene of history, what makes this king unique is that he really believes he is God. And and that is the simple description of Antichrist. This 
man is so deluded to think he's God. Verse 36, the the first phrase in there encapsulates this. Then the king will do as he pleases. That is a good summary of somebody who thinks they're God. That's the spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 2, 18, 22, and 4, 3 talks about. They don't confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? Because they think they're God. So the mark of this Antichrist king, this one who sets himself against God, is that he in his own mind can do and will do whatever he pleases. And let's be honest with it. That sounds like a God to me. It even sounds like the God of the Bible. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Then the king will do as he pleases. This is Antichrist. This is anti-God. This is one who thinks he can go and do, and it says he will do as he pleases. What are some of the things he will do that he wants to do? Well, somebody that really thinks they're God, the first thing they're going to do is right there in their pride in verse 36, exalt and magnify himself above every God. So you name the God, he's bigger and better and badder than that God. That's Antichrist. You can't come up with a God that he can't, I mean, it's, I mean, not to go too down into the daily lives of ours, but you know, the Johnny one-upper, you're telling a story and he's got what? Something bigger that he's done. You did this thing good, he's got a story that tops you. You can never out-talk him, out-top him because he has arrived and you need to bask in the glory of his life. You meet people like that. There's nothing you can teach them they don't know. There's no experience that you have had that they haven't had a more interesting one. So this guy outdoes them all. He exalts and magnifies himself above every god. There's his pride. But he's not just prideful. He's what? Blasphemous. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, Yahweh. He will set himself up and over the God of gods. So he's a blasphemer. And then he will prosper until the indignation is finished. As in, I mean, God's not going to step in and do something about this guy. No, because he will prosper until the indignation, the offense, the great abomination is done, that which is decreed. Why doesn't God step in? Because God's going to let this thing run its course. That's what it says. He's going to keep prospering and going until that which is decreed will be done. So verse 36 just gives you a really good summary of that entire section on Antichrist. He's prideful, he's blasphemous, and he will prosper. How particularly will he do this? Verse 37, he is so self-centered, self-worshipping. He shows no regard for anybody else's gods, even the gods of his own fathers, or for the desire of women. There's some ink spilled in commentaries on what that means. (laughs) At the very least, this guy is so caught up in his own headlines, he doesn't have time for anybody. So much so that you, some interpreters would say, the desire of women, he just, he doesn't have interest in a queen. And we know from the history of kings, whether in the Bible or outside of it, some kings take one queen, some t- kings take a hundred. He doesn't got time for that. He's only got time for his own agenda. He won't show regard for any other God. He will magnify himself above them all. So he is 
self-worshipping and self-centered to the core. What is, what's driving him? It's there in verse 38. He's, he's prideful. He's a blasphemer. He's a self-worshipper. He is prospering because all he wants is power. That's what 39 and 40 teach you. All, or 38 and 39. He just wants power. The God of fortresses. There is, now don't go on your phone right now. And now that I said don't do it, you're going to do it, of course. And oh, who is the God of fortresses? I'm sure there's some Greek or Roman or whatever out there, some Marvel character who was the God of fortresses. That's not being alluded to here in Daniel's. He's just saying the God of fortresses is a symbolic way to say he just wants power. He wants to rule the world. A God whom his fathers did not know. And he will take all the gold and silver and stones and treasures because he's conquering everybody and saying, these are all mine. I'm, I've got the most power. Now I've got the money. And verse 39, because he's shrewd, he will take action against other strong fortresses and he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. He will cause them to rule over as many and parcel out land. So he is shrewd enough to say, I'll conquer you. I'll take your money. I'll show you that your gods are nothing, but then I'll give you something back because so you're on my team. I mean, this is how he is going to rule the world. He will win people to himself. Verses 40 to 44 shows that what's his end game? Annihilation. If you stand against him, you will fall. And you can read about the king of the north, king of the south, uh, Edom, Moab, sons of Ammon. You could read about Egypt. You could read about Libyans, Ethiopians. You can read about verse 44, rumors from the east and from the north disturbing him. But the end game on 40 to 44 is this. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. That's what he's doing. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. You get in his way. He runs you over. That's it. Now I know some of you, you got countries. You hear rumors from the east, you're checking the box of China. You got rumors from the north, you're saying Russia. You're reading headlines yesterday, Russia and China are homies now. It's not what you're supposed to do with this. Missing the point. I mean, the reason I say that is because he's naming countries and kingdoms that don't even exist today. You meet an Edomite lately? Or how about a Moabite? So he's mixing in this view of the future kings and kingdoms that were in his time that have passed away, and then he's giving general directions in this prophecy of, yeah, there's going to be people coming south of there, Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians. So they're coming from the south. They're coming from the east. They're coming from the north. They can't really come from the west because it's the Mediterranean Sea. Sea monsters. I, you know, just relax on trying to fill out your bingo card of what's happening in 2023 and what countries are forming alliances. It's okay. I mean, I mean if that's your, your side hustle, that's your interest, you got to blog about it. But just know, even if you call it all, you can't do a thing about it. Except warn. You could, you could warn other people. As in, hey, friend, we're, we're in the end. And, and as powerful as this king that I figured out, check out my bingo card end times. I figured it out. But then you could say in verse 45, this is what comes of him. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion, meaning he'll build a palace to his own glory between the seas, Mediterranean Sea, and the beautiful holy mountains. This is Jerusalem. He, he sets up his shop in Jerusalem, which is mind-blowing to us because nobody can really set up shop in Jerusalem right now. It's just fought over. It's been fought over. It's always being fought over. This will be the first guy that can do it. 
And he, he arrived. He, he's done what no other king could do. He's in the Holy Land. He's conquered the north, south, east, and west. And he did it in a sh relatively short amount of time. But what's his end? Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. That's the net net on this guy's story, just like it is every other king and kingdom. And we've been seeing that since the beginning of Daniel. God rises kings up and God brings them down, even the worst of the worst. He will come to his end. Dunzo, off the scene. Because it's God's holy word, he doesn't even need to write, Yahweh will bring him to his end. God just says, no, this, this is my story I'm unfolding he comes to an end when I say he comes to an end. And he has no way to resist it. He has no way to stop it. What was interesting for me, I remember um, going back and what caught my attention in my version, I got the NAS, those of you that have the ESV, it'll differ. How many the king will do? He will exalt. He will speak monstrous things. He will prosper until the indignation. He will show no regard for gods. He will show no regard for any other god. He will magnify himself. He will honor a god of fortresses. He will honor him. He will, he will, he will, he will. Your version, he shall, he shall, he shall, he shall. And just unloads all the way until the most important he will. The only one that matters in your life and in mine and in everyone's. He will come to his end. That's the he will that matters. That's the he shall that matters. That's what we should be putting our time and attention to studying. Because when we study that he will and that he shall, we learn. The end is better than the beginning. Don't believe the hype. You've got a guy who in 10 or in seven years seems like he can do whatever he pleases and he does until he doesn't when God says he's done. So, I have a question for you this morning. Is there a spirit of antichrist in you? I wonder if you've been asked that in church before. I wonder if that would offend. What's the spirit of Antichrist? It's your pride. It's when you think you're the boss. You call the shots. You roll and reign. You're going to do what you're going to do, whatever you please, until God says, no, you won't. No, you won't. That's the spirit of Antichrist. You put yourself where God is. And it's not some evil, mysterious, ephemeral thing floating out there. You know, when, if you go to the, the, bar, the bad places around town and you watch the wrong things, the evil spirit of Antichrist. No, that's, that's not it. It's already in us because of our pride. It's already in us because of our pride. I, I would hear these things growing up. And you know, you're, as a kid, your imagination runs wild with this Antichrist person, and you think of him as some, something so otherworldly, almost to the point you would say, you know, you know Antichrist, he, he's like one of those orcs in Lord of the Rings that gets forged from Middle Earth or the core, and he comes out of the mud, and he's made of uh, slime and, and fire, and that's Antichrist. Nothing like everything like me. You and me, in all of creation are made of the same stuff 
as Antichrist. That's why I ask you, is the spirit of Antichrist in you? And I mean it. Because where you find your pride welling up in you wanting to have control of your life or someone else's or whatever it might be, you've got to question yourself. Does that right belong to me? And it doesn't. You know, the crazy thing when you think about Antichrist, what it'll be like. He'll be born to human parents. He may even be brought to church and go to Sunday school. He'll join a baseball team. He'll get good grades. Might get a full ride to college. He's a pretty smart guy. He might be top of his class, valedictorian, class president. Everybody's going to like him. Probably start his own company, rise to the top of that. Elected official, everybody wants to vote for this guy. You know, all the things that we commend, right? Just number one, be the best, go for it, shine like a star. Until what? Until you start believing your own headlines and lose sight of who really owns you. Not to say you shouldn't want to succeed, but who gets the glory in our success? And when the spirit of Antichrist, i.e. pride, takes root, that little seed, unchecked, that turns into what? It grows. It grows into a forest. It grows into redwoods. Redwoods of self-exaltation, power-hungry, money-seeking. What all the things that look huge and awful about Antichrist start with the same seed of pride. So are you pulling out the weeds before what? They grow. Because that's the warning we need to heed from this first section at the end of the story so that we can heed the warning of James 4, 6 that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the story of Daniel's life. I mean, what, we, we don't idolize him, but we can look back over these 12 chapters and see there was a man who was humble and God exalted him. I mean, he gave him a position of privilege to be useful for his kingdom while in exile, but you never saw Daniel reading his own headlines, buying his own hype, putting himself forward. It was always about God and his glory. And even helping the people around him, seeking the good of his city, his foreign city, though he didn't want to even be there. So can we learn from him? Because if we don't, we stand against and opposed to God. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus warns, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. So may the end of the lesson to this king be a lesson to us all, because we're made of the same material. Two lessons left. The end of the story. We get a lesson of the end of an earthly king in his story, but there's, there's a bigger story that's coming to an end here. Verse 1 through 4 of chapter 12. This is the end of Daniel's story. This is where he gets to put uh, pen to paper for the last time. And it might not go quite the way that he thought it was going to go. He, he's seeing a vision of the end of time at that time, the time when this king is coming to an end. God is at work. And you know, verse 12 or verse 1 of chapter 12, when Michael the archangel, Jude 1 9, has to get involved, God's mean in business. 
I mean, when he gets brought into this, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, he will arise. Why? Because we are in the great tribulation. We are in the worst of the worst times for the people of God recorded in the Bible. Why do I say that? Because that's, it's like right in front of us. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And, and Michael the archangel, who we met back in chapter 10, who is, as so it appears, assigned to a particular task, protect the people of God. I mean, that's what it says. Guard the sons of your people. Who are the people? Daniel's people. Who are Daniel's people? Israel. And, and he's going to arise. And though there is such a tribulation such as never occurred, they won't be entirely squashed. But they will go through a great tribulation. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24. Almost word for word. Matthew 24, 21. There will be such a great tribulation. Now, now you're staring still at Daniel 12, 1 while I read Matthew 24, 22, or 21. There will be such a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days, those days of great tribulation were cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, God's children, those days will be cut short. Jesus and Daniel were talking about the same time. This time hasn't been seen before. It's the worst of the worst times. And I mentioned before, go read Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Your people will go through that persecution. But everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. There's the hope. If they're in the book, what book? We've talked about the book before. God's book. The book of life. They'll be rescued. They'll make it through. And that doesn't mean they'll make it through even living. Look, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life. Now, this is where Daniel's mind had to be like, he, he was tracking, he has he, he seen, God has made it clear throughout Daniel 7 all the way to 12 and all the visions given to him, God's people will go through suffering all the way till the end. But he gets a promise here right at the end of the end that he's never been given before. How about this? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel gets the privilege and the promise of the resurrection. It's not all over your Old Testament. This isn't something that everybody, oh yeah, you know, we're just cool to cruise through affliction and suffering because, you know, from the beginning of the Old Testament, there's this idea of, no, Daniel's one of the few times here in chapter 12, verse 2, where he's told there are those, God's people, who will awake to everlasting life. And then there's also the warning, there are those who will awake to everlasting contempt. What a promise. Talk about God saving the best for last. Because when you really run in your own mind, in your own thinking, when you run suffering in this life and affliction you face to its logical conclusion, and you're told to persevere, and you're told to hold on to hope, but you can't quite 
say, well, that means that I'll never have to suffer ultimately and, you know, I won't go down in flames or whatever it might be. No, 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 no. That could happen to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, Jesus says. So the only logical conclusion you can run a a hope or a promise of God to you through suffering and affliction like Daniel is being told is if there's something even after death that though I die, I will rise. And that's what Daniel's being told at the end of his life about the end of the age. So the end of his story has the greatest ending ever told. There is a promise in resurrection life. Now, I can't go into that today, but in God's timing of ending this thing, we get to begin a new thing next week, and Easter's coming, and we'll spend a few weeks looking at the resurrection promise from the Bible. How about that? God's timing is always so good. He's just teeing us up to say, okay, this is a little bit mysterious, this verse 2. Well, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection in two Sundays, so why not spend a little bit of time? So you've got to come back for that. But there is a warning that's in, held in this. There's a promise and a warning. The promise is those who have insight, verse 3, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Friend, there is two categories of people here, and there are two destinations. And it's the same in the entire storyline of Scripture. There are those who are found righteous and get everlasting life, and there are those who are the wicked and find everlasting contempt. Those are your two destinations, heaven and hell, right there in Daniel 12. Now, verse 3 could make it sound like those who have insight will shine brightly. Those will be the ones everlasting life. And you may be sitting there going, so I got to be smart to get to heaven? Yes and no. I mean, if it's IQ, I'm out. But if this insight is talking about something more than IQ, then I might get a chance. If maybe it's a message so foolish to the world that they would reject it at face value, maybe that's the insight we're talking about. Maybe it's the entire opposite of the insight that most people come in the world thinking they need. The insight that says you got to learn, you got to attain, you got to achieve, you got to be like God. You've got to know it all in order to believe it all and do it all. And I did my research on that word, those who have insight, because it really did affect me in the sense that doesn't seem fair. Is this really a matter of who's got the smarts and who doesn't? Because that seems to run counter to Paul's message in 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? God didn't choose the noble. God didn't choose the mighty. God didn't choose the wise. But he chose the foolish things to shame those who think they're wise and the weak things to shame those who think it's about being strong. But I'm looking at that going, well, let's do some research. So I just usually start with a word study. And I say, where else does that word insight show up in my Bible? You know where the first place it shows up? Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where we hear about insight that was offered to a person. And they took the bait. Satan comes in the disguise of a snake to offer to Eve insight that she wasn't meant to have. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. It's the same word here in Daniel 12, 3. Just 
The liberty of a translator is to take that word and say, I think I'm going to call it wise there, but I want to use insight over here. But it's the same word. Those who have wisdom will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heavens. What did Satan deceive Eve with? Hey, when you eat this food, you'll get insight, wisdom that belongs to God that'll make you like God. So follow the trail. The same issue that was for Adam and Eve in the garden is the same one for us today. Satan wants to offer you wisdom of the world. Appeal to your pride. Some of you that aren't in Christ to hear this morning. That, that, that message is just so old and dated. How could I possibly believe talking snakes in a garden and Daniel having visions of an angel? Fundamentalists, heads in the sand. I'm smarter than that. You took the bait. See, there's two things you're offered. One is somebody who says, you want to be like God? You want to have all the wisdom? You want to have all the insight? Take and eat. And there's another who says, you want forgiveness? You want eternal life? You want your sins removed and my righteousness given to you? Take and eat. And that's the choice you face if you're not in Christ today. And the enemy wants to continue to barrage you with the wisdom of the world, your own thinking, your own smarts, your own IQ. Take and eat. It's desirable to make you wise. Don't give in to that foolish message of the Christian faith. And then there's Christ saying, Unless you eat of my body, unless you drink of my blood, you have no part of me. Because that reduces us down to what? Humble recipients who see that there is nothing good in me. There's nothing that I know. There's nothing I can learn. There's nothing I can do to be forgiven apart from what God has already done for me and his son, Jesus Christ. So take and eat today. He offers you both. Do you want to continue to trust in your own wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that says this is a foolish message? You know it is in the world's eyes. But the great divide in eternity is going to be those who go to everlasting life who said, I want that wisdom from above. I don't want the illusion of the wisdom of the world. I want the incarnation of the wisdom from heaven. And that was Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who laid down his own life so that yours could be forgiven and was killed but rose again three days later to, to show, to prove the power of the resurrection that death has lost and sin's punishment has been removed for those who trust in him by faith. That's the good news of the gospel. Do you believe it today? Are you humble enough to receive it? Are you trusting in yourself? That's the end of the story for Daniel. Look at verse 4. As for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Imagine that cliffhanger. Now look at that. This is how it's all going to end. Stars shining in the sky forever. Others going to everlasting destruction. All right. Story's up. Conceal it. Seal it until the end of time. But that's all God had for Daniel to know. 
and just took him right to the end. I mean, showed him how bad it's going to be and showed him the one thing that cuts through all that is the promise of the resurrection. And that's the end of the story for Daniel. But as we move to the end of the age, the last um, eight verses or nine verses, you have the end of the age. You had Daniel being told, hey, you've written enough. Um, this was called 5 to 13, kind of a postscript, the end of the age. So Daniel looks and beholds in verses 5 to 7, uh, he sees these two angels standing on opposite sides of a river, and he's, he's seen something like this before, and he is listening in on their conversation. These angels are longing to look into and understand, as it says angels did, these things that are beyond their understanding. Verse 7, so the one man says to the other, verse 6, sorry, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I mean, these these angelic beings are looking into the future and they they see this uh, cataclysmic war they see this war for the ages they see michael and the powers that be with him going against satan's and they're like how long is this going to go on so the one man says to the other i mean this is if you're ever going to testify you don't just raise your right hand he raises his right and his left and he swears by him who lives forever he swears by the god of heaven that this would go on for a time times and half a time and, and what's going to happen in this time, times and half a time, which we saw back in uh, Daniel 7.25 and validated by 9.27, the middle of the 70th year, seven years, three and a half years, time a year, times two years and half a time, three and a half years. The, at that time, here's how bad it is. As soon as they, they who, the persecutors, finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. The, Notice it doesn't say the holy people are wiped out, but the power of the holy people, as in God's people, making it through this tribulation period, they will be reduced to absolute abandonment of any hope and power of their own. Which is a warning, isn't it, that some people need it to get that bad to finally what? Bow the knee. I mean, Zechariah says that those who crucified him will finally look on the one they crucified and confess Jesus as Messiah. It had to get that bad for these holy people to finally see that they, they've come to the end of themselves. And Daniel, I mean, this, this reminder of how bad it's going to be at this ending of time, what is Daniel's response? Verse 8, I heard it, but could not understand it. I mean, I know that's some of y'all's life verse when you listen to me preach. You hear it, but you can't understand it. And so he says... Okay, I get it's going to be this bad, but what comes on the other side of it? What's the outcome of this? Will any of them make it through? Or God, are you just letting things spin out of control? That's Daniel's question. And God in his grace gives him, an, he had one more question, so he gets one more answer. The angel says, go your way, Daniel. But I will tell you this. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. So what's the purpose of God's people, God's holy ones going through this suffering in the end? He is doing what? He's purifying for himself a people. His people, Israel, that have rejected him for all ages. That finally it's going to take. They'll be purged, they'll be purified, and they will be refined. Brothers and sisters, this is what suffering does, is it not? Does it have any other purpose or effect in your life but to do what to you? Purge the sin that remains. Purify us to be more like Christ. Refine us to grow in Christ-likeness. That's why it exists. That's why it's there. 
It's not an end in and of itself, suffering. It's to make us more like Christ, and it's going to make these holy ones at the end finally look to Christ, but yet the wicked will go on acting wickedly because they will not understand. And again, there's that word again, but those who have insight will understand. Those who have the wisdom from above, they'll get it. They'll put it together. And so then the angel says, here's how long it's going to be from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation, which Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24 and Mark 19. This is that final offense of the Antichrist setting up false worship to himself in the temple, turning the tables on all the people he's deceived. There's going to be 1,290 days. And then a most curious verse. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. And, and this, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for some eschatology and connecting some texts, but I tap out here. I don't know what the significance is of the 45 days between the 1290 and the 1,335. Now you can do your research and give me some ideas. But here's what I see there. That God knows the details down to the day. What does he require of his people? Perseverance. The all I see God say, and I know he's saying more, but um, now I'm, I'm life verse in verse eight. I heard but could not understand. All I'm saying is when I see, okay, 11 and 12, the last thing Daniel is told is in the end of all the end in the great tribulation, it's going to be really bad at day 1,290, but if I can just last, if somebody can just make it through to 1,335, how blessed they will be. God's not shooting from the hip, is he? He knows the details of our lives through the suffering, through the affliction, down to the day. But he doesn't usually tell us the day, does he? He just tells us what? How blessed for you who keep going. How blessed is the one who perseveres. How blessed is the one that remains, that stands firm, that doesn't give in. That's the message he's given to Daniel here. Just hold on a little bit longer. You're almost there. Verse 13, this is the final word for Daniel. As for you, go your way to the end. Keep living your life of faith. Don't give up. Do you need that today? That's what it's saying. And you're like, but I want to give up. may not be a difference of 45 days. It, It may be God has something you're going through right now that you just need to get to the end of this day. I mean, that's what it can come down to. I just need to trust God and walk in faith to make it to the end of today. And how blessed are you if you don't give up? So go on your way to the end and then the promise to Daniel and you will enter into rest. You'll die. It's gonna happen to everybody here, young and old. You'll die and then you'll rise. And here's this promise for Daniel that I think why he could finally put his pen down. Even though he probably should have put it down in verse 4. He can correct me on that later. It was was supposed to be the end and sealed up. But he gets a bonus ball and then he finally gets what he needs. You'll rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel, go your way. You will die. You'll rise again. And you'll get your allotted portion. You won't get back to the promised land on this side of the thing, but you will wake up somewhere far better one day. 
Do we have any other hope? You got a better deal than verse 13? You'll die. And you'll rise. And there's an allotted portion for all of God's children forever to the, to the end. It's unbelievable. But you can't run whatever questions and doubts and concerns you have past verse 13 where the period stands. There's no more answer beyond what God can reveal here for the hope that we have in Christ. He's given you hope in Christ today. You get to be in on that promise of resurrection life if you what? If you take God at his word. If you believe this is the promise for me all the way to the end. So in summary, what does this end of the end for Daniel bring us? Well, it, it makes us a little more humble, doesn't it? When we see and hear, heed the warning of that king. But it also makes us very hopeful, doesn't it? And with this Easter season coming, what more does a witness for Jesus Christ need than to be humble in how we invite and in how we tell the gospel and hopeful? We really do have a hope to give the world. Look back at verse 3. Yeah, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you're a humble and hopeful follower of God, then you can tell someone else what it means to be righteous in Christ. I mean, that's just a privilege, isn't it? All God's done for me and all he could do for someone else and to give some person in the next two weeks the time of year when we of all people should have the most to be hopeful for, to give someone out there, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, give them hope. Talk to them about Christ. Can you say amen to that? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its promises. And there's not a better promise in the scripture that we'll rise again. There's nothing that can outdo that. And we walk by faith, not by sight, into that promise. The only hope we have for that is the hope we have in Christ, that you died and rose again. And we believe your word. And we believe the testimony of those who have been born again, those testimonies we heard today, that you're still giving new life right in our midst. Father, you could give new life right in this moment to those who would be humble right now to bow, to stop opposing you in their pride, but to give up and give in and receive Christ as Savior and Lord today, that they would cry out to you right now, Lord, is, is a joy beyond words. Say, may you have mercy on whom you'll have mercy for your glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.